by the Holy Spirit. Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about this. Just think about these, these realities. Grace. How many, how many like grace? Oh, not everybody. How about mercy? Uh, there's more people. Okay. How about salvation? Okay. What do you think? I mean, when, when you... When you experience, if I can say it this way, when you experience the realization of grace. you know what I'm talking about? When someone is really gracious to you beyond what you clearly deserve, when, when you're shown great mercy, when you grasp the realization of salvation, what do you think you should experience? What, what natural kind of thing, phenomenon, should you experience? Thanksgiving, peace, gratitude, okay. How about joy? How about joy? (laughs) Just unmitigated joy. Joy. And I think one, I think it's safe to say one expression of joy One expression is to sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. When you grasp the reality of His grace, when you grasp the reality of His mercy, when we grasp the reality of salvation, we give thanks, but more than anything else, I think, we have to sing and make music in our heart to the Lord. Why? Because he's a source. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. After laying down the, all the doctrine, all the, the understanding of this great salvation that we've been blessed with, all of God's grace and his election and all of those things, Paul says, Now speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do we typically do that? Do we speak to each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? No, we don't. Why is that? I suspect suspect because we, we, we are realizing more the other things of life. Not realizing His grace and mercy. Realizing it. Not just understanding it. Realizing it. It's real. And having it affect my life. And the more it does, the more we realize these things, uh, we're, we're going to be around each other and just speaking to each other, not just like we normally do. How many have gone home after, after church or after maybe mini church or, or some, some environment where, where you've been praising and singing and had a song stick in your head? You've done that, and you're laying in bed at night going, hmm, 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 hmm. <laughs> But that's kind of like the idea, but really, we'll be much more intentional because we know these things. 
we would speak to each other with that kind of joy expressed through those mechanisms. He says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Make, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I submit to you that that's, those are marks and expressions of people who are walking consciously and deliberately in the grace of God. Consciously and deliberately. You can't not sing and praise and give thanks continually. You're just going all day, God, thank you. I praise you. You're awesome. People think you're nuts. You're driving in your car, singing, praising God. And they're looking over at you. Oh, what is that weirdo doing? Paul says it again in Colossians. He says, sing spiritual psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. Why? Why would we even do that? Because of his mercy and his grace and his great salvation. God, if you never give me another thing, you have given me more than I could ever hope for. Should these things mark the lives of Christians? Can you envision yourself doing this? Can you envision yourself coming up the stairs on Sunday morning, singing to me at the top of the stairs? (laughs) Pastor, I want to sing you a song, a hymn, a spiritual song. I'd have you all lined up down the stairs, right? This is, a, this is a theme that you see throughout the scriptures. Let me just share with you some verses out of, out of Psalms. These are marvelous, just isolated verses. Psalm 5, verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you be what? Be glad. Be glad. Be glad. Now, why, do, why would I take refuge in? Because what? life is assaulting me. I'm going to take refuge in him. And, and, and in him, I can be glad. I'm, I'm going to find shelter under his wings. He's my safe haven, my safe harbor. And there I can be glad. Let them ever, ever sing for joy. Psalm 13, verse 6, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. I would like, who would like to appropriate that verse? <laughs> he has been good to me. Psalm 30, verse 4, sing to the Lord, you saints of his, praise his holy name. And I love this one, Psalm 92. It is good to praise the Lord. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Again and again and again. You see this theme of people who are realizing God's mercy and grace, His salvation. The only response is a response that acknowledges Him and sings to Him and praises Him and thanks Him. There are a number of songs of praise in the Old Testament. A terrific one is uh, the Song of Moses. Uh, you recall back in the book of Exodus, right after the 
Israelites have been delivered from Pharaoh and from the threat of his armies, and the Israelites have, have come through the Red Sea. The sea parted. Do you believe that actually happened? Do you really? It's amazing. Amazing. The Bible says the sea parted. The Bible says that the Israelites walked through the sea. The Bible says that when the Pharaoh's army chased after them, the sea closed back over them and wiped them all out. Now, if you were on the other side, you were an Israelite, would you rejoice? <laughs> yeah. Because right before that, man, they were scared to death, weren't they? And so Moses, Moses leads the congregation in a song of praise for their deliverance, for their salvation. In the book of Judges, in chapter 5, you read the account of Deborah and Barak, who, after God delivering them, delivering the Israelites, they had been cruelly, cruelly oppressed by the Canaanites around them for 20 years. And under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, God had delivered them from that cruel oppression. And after the deliverance, they lead the people in a song of praise and thanksgiving. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple in Second Chronicles, let me read to you this. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jejuthun, their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeteers and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord, and they sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Say that with me. He is good, His love endures forever. Can you imagine all the Levites, all the musicians playing in unison, lifting up their voices in unison, and, and saying that, singing that. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the temple of God. I don't know about you, but that would have been really, really an experience. The temple of the Lord filling the cloud. Just imagine, here we are. We can hardly wait to get here. In fact, we come early to worship. We come early to get the front seats. We come early to sing His praises. And all of us, all of us expressing the sentiment that, that is expressed here. He is good and His love endures forever. We're acknowledging that. As we come up the stairs, we're, we're shaking off the world and we're shaking off the, the, the cares of the world. And we can hardly wait to get in here and sing. And here we are, all of us, the musicians and all the congregation, singing He is good and His love endures forever. And imagine the glory of the Lord settling in here. The cloud filling this room. And the smoke detectors don't go off. <laughs> God, would, that be, would that be awesome? Just imagine. 
Hannah. Hannah, you recall in 1 Samuel chapter 2, sang a song of praise to the Lord for delivering her. Delivering her from the stigma of barrenness. And that was a stigma in ancient times. The book of Psalms. Israel's hymn book. Isn't it, isn't it, isn't it awesome that, that the Holy Spirit writes 150 hymns, 150 prayers, 150 songs that we can sing to Him. These are God's, this is God's design, how we should sing to Him, how we should praise Him. If you're ever at a loss of knowing how to praise Him, open up to the hymn book, the book of Psalms. And he writes all those psalms. They're filled with, filled with songs celebrating the delivering, saving, redeeming acts of God towards his people. Again and again and again. Again and again and again. Praise the name of our God. The book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. You find Songs of praise in the book of Revelation. Those songs of praise are not being sung here on earth. Guess where they're being sung? They're being sung in heaven. You know what we're going to be doing in heaven, among other things? We're going to be praising God. We're going to finally see Jesus face to face. I promise you, when I walk through those gates, when I run through those gates, I'm knocking everybody down to get to Jesus. Those of you who will precede me, I'll see you later. We have all eternity to connect. But I'm going to knock you down to get to Jesus, to praise Him, to thank Him. Just think about it. In our passage here in, the, in, the, in, in Luke's Gospel, Zechariah himself breaks out. He breaks out in this Holy Spirit-inspired song of praise. And the song of praise is prompted, as I, as I said, by the Holy Spirit, but it's prompted also by the amazing events that had just taken place in his life. Nine months earlier, he'd been in the temple ministering. Nine months earlier, out of all the priests, he is chosen by lot to be in the temple ministering. And while he's ministering, he turns to his right and there is an angel, the angel Gabriel. That in itself is awesome. And then Gabriel makes this stunning announcement to Zechariah that he and his lovely wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. Now remember, they are barren. They're well past childbearing age. They have no hope of having a child. And here's Gabriel announcing to them that they are going to have a child. And not just any child. Their child is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. According to the prophecies in Malachi, which Zechariah would know because he's a priest. He knows the scriptures. And Zechariah's going, wow, really? Oh, that's so exciting. I can hardly wait to finish my duty in the temple and run home and tell my bride that we're going to have a baby. Is that right? No. Zechariah was a bit skeptical. 
After all, he was a very pragmatic man. How is this going to happen? Come on. Come on, Gabriel. Give me a break. No, he was skeptical. And as a result of his skepticism, Gabriel tells him, you're not going to speak. Your mouth is going to be sealed until the baby is born. And sure enough, Elizabeth became pregnant, just as God had promised through Gabriel. Eight days after she gave birth to their son, Zechariah was asked what to name him. He called for a tablet, and because he couldn't speak, he, he wrote the name, and he said, his name is John. And in verse 64 of Luke chapter 1, we read, Immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue was loose, and he began to speak. He began to speak praising God. Can you imagine? Nine months he can't hear, he can't talk. Nine months he's in utter amazement that his beautiful Elizabeth is with child. Nine months Gabriel's words are going to echo in his head. Nine months he's quiet. He can't say a thing. Can you imagine now when his mouth is open, his tongue is loose? What's the first thing he does? Praises God. Praises God. Look with me at the passage in Luke. Let's read what he said, recorded by Luke. Verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. And has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from all, from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in the darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And Luke goes on and says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Zechariah's song was not merely a reflection of his joy at becoming a father of a child he never expected to have. No, his song was more than that. His song, inspired by the Holy Spirit, expressed this great significant truth that the redemption of God promised in the Old Testament prophesied was about to be accomplished he knew all the scriptures he knew all the prophecies he knew that his son was going to be the forerunner he knew that right after john would be born the messiah was coming into the world all the old testament prophecies were coming true no wonder zechariah praised the lord Look at verse 66 with me real quickly. This is the question after um, John was born and all the events 
were known about his birth and everyone was talking, what was the question that was on everybody's mind? Yeah, yeah. The, the question on everybody's mind is, what, what, what is to become of this child? Who is this? John is not just a standalone figure. He's not isolated. John's life, his ministry, his purpose, his very being is contextualized in God's redeeming plan through the Messiah. Your life and my life, we're not just standalone. It's not just, we're contextualized into the body of Christ, are we not? Does my arm, can my arm do whatever it pleases? Does my arm say to the head, I just want to do what I want? No. The arm does what the head says. We are part of the body of Christ. We, we, we don't do what we want. We do what he wants, what he tells us to do. Our lives are contextualized, just like John's, in, in, into God's plan of salvation uh, through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Am I making sense to you? So when you notice the, the, the song of praise, the first half is devoted to God, the Messiah, the great salvation, and the effect of that salvation. That sets the stage. And now, he's second part, he addresses John. But without that first part, John has no purpose. He has no meaning. Just like without Christ in our life, we have no purpose, we have no meaning. Think about that. We're all over the map, are we not? Why am I here? What's my purpose? I only find true purpose when my life is hid in Christ. Because he gives me purpose. How many have discovered that? Or are discovering that? I'm just now getting, I'm figuring out, oh yeah. Okay, it's not just about me. It's about him, his purpose, his plan. I fit into his plan. What is his will? Jesus said it, didn't he? So succinctly. He said, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 67, Luke tells us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. This is a prophetic utterance. And a prophetic utterance is an utterance that glorifies God. As I said a moment ago, the first part of Zechariah's song concerned God's Savior. And he tells us four things. Four things were were predicted. Four things were prophesied about God's Savior. The first is that the Messiah was the one, the Messiah was the one through whom God has come and God has redeemed his people. Look again with me at verse uh, 68 and 69. Look at the verbs. Technically, they're known as prophetic aorists. And they're translated, has come, has redeemed, has raised up. In other words, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Zechariah here as he prophesies that the fact is God's promises are so certain they are expressed as already being accomplished, already in place. He has come. Now, has the Messiah already come? No, he's about to, he's about to come. 
in time and space and history. He's about to be born. But the prophetic promises, the prophecies about the Messiah are so certain that, that Zechariah can say, he has come. It's already happened. There's an interesting passage in Ephesians, and Paul writes about us as, as, as part of the body of Christ, and he says that we are seated in heavenly realms. We are seated in heavenly realms. We say, wait a minute, I'm seated here at Hope Chapel. No, no, no. The, the truth is so certain of our salvation that he can say it's already accomplished. We are already seated in heavenly realms. I have my seat. I'm as good as there. You see? It, it just speaks to the certainty of God's word, the certainty of his promises. The Messiah was the one. The Messiah was the one through whom God had come and redeemed his people. It was God himself who would visit the earth in the person of the Messiah. God had, negle- had not neglected the world. He had not neglected man. He had been actively involved in all of the affairs of humankind ever since before the foundation of the world. God is at work right now in your life. Do you know that? He is at work in your life right now. Well, I don't feel it. It doesn't, but that doesn't deny the fact that he's already at work. He's been working, 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 working in your life. That gives us hope, doesn't it? God is at work. Does he have a plan of purpose? Does he have a plan for your life? What do you think? Does he have a plan for your life? Is, do you think he's working that plan out? Absolutely. Even in the face of our stubbornness and our ignorance and our foolishness, isn't he? He is working that plan out. Will his will be done? Absolutely. And so he hadn't neglected the world. He's not just coming all of a sudden now he's taking interest. No, he'd been working since the beginning in the affairs of men, individually and as well corporately. He'd sent his word, has he not? He'd sent his messengers. But now God is becoming personally involved. He was going to come and visit the world himself. Wow. Why? To tell us the way to go. To show us the way to go. If you're going to communicate to an ant, what would you think would be the best way to communicate to an ant? Yeah, become one. So you have those little feelers. Do you ever watch ants? They walk in a line, and they stop every ant stops, and they communicate. You're on the right path. You're on the right path. Keep going. We think about it. So he what? He, he condescends to become one of us to communicate to us the way that he and he alone can save us. We can't save ourselves. And note the purpose of his visit. Zechariah says he came to redeem his people. He came to save his people. He came to rescue his people. Is that news to anybody? How many times can we rehearse that? 
How many times should we rehearse it? Continuously. He came to redeem us. He came to save us. He came to rescue us from our enemies. And not just temporal enemies. Now remember, Zechariah's context immediately is Rome is the enemy of Israel. Rome is ruling with an iron boot, if you will. And the Jews chafed under that. They longed to be delivered. And the Jews, especially those who knew the Old Testament prophecies from Isaiah, they knew that Israel would become a preeminent nation on the earth, that all nations would come to Jerusalem. All nations would worship. They longed for the golden age of Israel, prophesied. They just didn't understand the timing. And so they, they longed for and, and to, to be set free and to be redeemed from their enemies and those who hated them. But there are greater enemies than just temporal enemies, aren't there? Yes. He redeems us not just from temporal enemies, but also from the enemies of sin and death and hell and condemnation and Satan. Those are the real enemies that he saves us from. From from isolation from him. He saves us from that. And how does he do that? How, How is God going to redeem us? How does he do that? How would you redeem anything? You know, when I was a kid, my mom used to, where she go shopping, and way, way back in, the, in those days, there were these things called uh, S&H green stamps. Anybody remember those? And she'd come back with bundles of these green stamps. She'd put them in a big shopping bag, and every so often she'd get us kids out, and we'd have to lick the green stamps and put them in the books. So she could go to a silly green stamp store and redeem those stamps for some stupid item. <laughs> and we're there going, God, I hate this. I hate this. So Jesus redeems us. The point I want to make is there is a cost to redemption. She couldn't just go into the store and say, I'll have that item and that item. They're going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where are your, where's your stamps? There's a cost to redemption. What did it cost him to redeem us? What did it cost him to redeem us? We just had communion. What did it cost him? His life. The Apostle Paul reminds us, he says, you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. What implication can we draw from that? Well, the implication was that I was somehow in bondage. I had to be bought out of bondage. I had to be purchased out of bondage. Where was I in bondage? In the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13. He has rescued me. He's purchased me from the domain of darkness. He's transferred me to the kingdom of his son whom he loves. Paul says... You've been bought with a price. You are no longer, you do not belong to yourself anymore. You have no basis. If you are a Christian, if you are redeemed, you have no basis to say, it's my life, I can do with it as I please. I'm not happy, so I'm going. Things aren't going my way, so I'm out of here. 
things aren't going your way because God's at work in your life. He wants you to stand firm. He wants you to trust him in the midst of the struggle, right? And sometimes you're going, I hate this. That's just a reflection of you. God's trying to get you to the place, not trying. He will get you to the place. I promise you, if you'll stay put, he will get you to the place where you say, all right, God, good. I can, I can, get, I can get behind this. I see what you're doing. I see how I can be a sacrifice. I can see how you can work in and through my life to be a light to those who are totally bewildered by, by, by how I can do what I'm doing. Right? I have a mission. I have a purpose. My life is not my own. I've been bought. And I've not been bought with silver or gold, perishable things like silver and gold. Peter says, no. I've been redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. So the Messiah, God in Christ, God in the Messiah has come to redeem us. Secondly, Zechariah says that the Messiah was the mighty Savior of David's house. David's line. King David, the greatest of Israel's kings. And he uses an interesting phrase. The phrase, horn of salvation. Do you see that phrase? You find that in verse 69. The horn of salvation. That's simply a reference to Christ. The word horn throughout the Old Testament was a symbol of strength and power and might. Big animals, big horns were, were... it was symbolic of power. These powerful animals would lower the head and they would, with their horns they would conquer their enemies and defeat uh, other, other, other animals, other beasts. The Messiah is called the horn, the mighty one of salvation because he alone possesses the might. He alone possesses the strength. He alone possesses the power to save. He is the horn of salvation. But notice where the horn or where the Messiah was raised up. In the house of his servant David. God had promised that David would have, he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. It's a prophecy that God makes to David. In fact, in Psalm 132, verse 17, the Messiah was the horn promised to David. Listen, God says, I will make a horn grow for David. King David was raised up by God to to deliver, to rule over God's people Israel. The Messiah, the horn, was raised up to deliver and to rule not only over Israel, but to all, all people. And not just for a short period of time, but for all eternity. He's He's the son of David, the house of David, fulfilling all the prophecies about the Messiah. And Zechariah acknowledges that. Thirdly, we're told in verse 70 that the Messiah was the one prophesied again and again and again. And again, the idea here 
is that God was working out his plan. He was on his throne bringing to pass all that he had promised. Some people view God as distant and uninvolved. They say, well, God doesn't really get involved. Yes, he does. He's always intimately involved. He's always working. Messiah had been foretold since the beginning of the world. Right after the fall of man, right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God and gone their own way and chosen independence rather than remain dependent on him. God prophesied that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. The seed of the woman. Who in the world is that? If the Bible ended at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, we would never know who that would be. But the whole rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that prophetic promise. God promised to Abraham that the Messiah would be his seed. It would be through his seed. And Paul comments out that in Galatians chapter 3, that it's not seeds, plural, it's seed, singular, speaking of the one particular seed who would be a blessing to all man. The prediction of the Messiah dealt with salvation. He was to save Israel. But really, he was to save all believers from their enemies and from all who hated them. Again, a reminder, salvation is not just material. It's just not physical deliverance, although it includes those things. We pray and we pray and we pray, God, save me from my enemies. Save me from my... Lord, deliver me from this horrible person that I work with. Deliver me from this horrible husband. This horrible wife. Deliver me from these horrible kids. The kids say, God, deliver me from these horrible parents. See, our our understanding of salvation is so shallow sometimes. We live shallow Christian lives far too often. While that salvation is a salvation that it would include material deliverance, would include physical deliverance. That salvation is is much, much more. It's a spiritual salvation. It's an eternal salvation. It's the salvation that makes all the difference. God, thank you that you saved me. Thank you that you saved me. And if by some great plan of yours, you've ordained from before the foundation, that I should be in this place at this time, in this circumstance, I trust you. Because you have saved me for your purpose. How many times do you you have to stop yourself and say, it's not about me. It's not about me. Because most of the time we wake up and it's about us. It's a deliverance that he brings and a life that he brings that will never, ever end. I mean, he can deliver you some, from some problem situation in this life, and that's great, and you praise him if he does. But that's only going to set you up for another problem, right? And then another problem. And then another problem person. When, in fact, his deliverance goes much deeper than that. He wants to deliver you from yourself. So that you can be of some earthly good in the life of these problem people. 
How many would like to have someone like that in their life? How many, how many would you like to have somebody who's been delivered from themselves in your life? Does that sound good? Would that someone you like to hang out with a little bit? Those people are dangerous, though, you know. They're dangerous. Right, Rommel? Beloved, God's salvation is from the enemies that wage an endless war against our spirit and that enslave us. They're the enemies of sin and death and hell, condemnation, judgment, Satan. God doesn't mean for us to be enslaved to those things. And fourthly, the Messiah was the one who fulfilled all the promised mercy of God, all the mercy of God that he had, he had promised. All that mercy is fulfilled and mediated by the Messiah. The promised covenant, the oath made to Abraham, that too is mediated and fulfilled by the Messiah. The Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham that if he would get up and he would leave his country, leave everything that gave his life meaning and purpose, leave his nice condo in Ur, leave all the accoutrements that he had surrounded his life with, all the comforts, and he would consent to live in a tent and to be a Traveler, a pilgrim. God said to him, I'll take you to a place. I'll show you when we get there. Can't you at least tell me where we're going and how long it's going to take? No, it's a walk of faith. He says the same thing to you and I. He says, I want you to leave the things that you cling to that give your life meaning and purpose, and I want you to transfer those dependency needs over onto me. And then I want you to walk with me. I'm going to lead you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to take you to a place that when we get there, you'll see. And it's Jesus who fulfills that. We find utter, total fulfillment in God's purpose, in His promises, in Christ. He is sufficient. Should He be? The mercies of God, the mercies of God that had been promised are fulfilled in Christ. The Messiah brings the mercy of God to man. Jesus brings the mercy of God to man. The mercy promised to all the, all the fathers, all of our spiritual fathers and, and to Abraham himself. The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, establishes the covenant of faith with us. That covenant promised to Abraham and his seed. The Messiah saves all who believe the promises of God. Just as Abraham believed God. Do you believe God? Do you believe God? Do you believe what he says? Do you believe what he says about our condition? Who we are? Who he is? The solution to our dilemma. Do you believe God? 
like Abraham. Now God has mercy and he delivers us through faith. Zechariah says, for two very specific reasons. These are the reasons why he delivers us, says Zechariah, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number one, so that we might serve him without what? Without fear. We might serve him without fear. I I submit to you that fear is probably one of our greatest issues and problems. We're afraid sometimes of our own shadow, aren't we? We're afraid of the unknown. I don't know what's out there. Oh my gosh, I don't want to get up this morning. And that fear can be palpable. It can be very real. Immobilizes us. God doesn't want us to live with fear. He doesn't want us to live with fear of other people. Sometimes we are so afraid of other people, aren't we? So afraid to say that I are a Christian. Would you like to become one too? Afraid of what? The criticism? The mockery? It's true, isn't it? We're afraid of the future. We're intimidated by the future. We think, oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Most of us, if truth be known, most of us like to be in control. I want to be in control of everything. I'm going to, you'll see. And it creates a havoc for our life and everybody around us. Because why? We're afraid of the future. He doesn't want us to be people who are afraid of circumstances. He doesn't want us to be superstitious. There are far too many Christians who are superstitious because they don't know the truth. He doesn't want us to be afraid of the devil. Oh, oh, the devil. The devil's here. Shut up. (laughs) It doesn't matter. The devil has been defeated. He has no power. You just need to make sure that he doesn't get a foothold in your life because of your own foolishness and sin. The devil is not a problem, really. An enemy, yes, but he's not a problem. The devil, girls, is just like a pain-in-the-neck old boyfriend. How do you get rid of him? You just ignore him. Pretty soon he goes away. Right? You don't answer the phone. You don't answer the letters. You don't... Nothing. You resist him and he what? Will flee. God does not want us to fear death. He doesn't want us to fear death. He doesn't want us to fear anything. He wants us to live hopefully, confidently, excitedly, expectantly. He wants us to know His peace. He wants us to have peace of mind. He wants us to know the peace of God that protects and guards our hearts in Christ Jesus, our minds in Christ Jesus. He wants us to feel secure. Is there any child, do you think, if you're, how many parents do we have? Do you suppose, parents, that your kids have some deep down desire to feel secure with you in your home? 
Like they're going to get up in the morning and breakfast is going to be there. You're going to be there. Or do you think your kids look, look forward to the day when it's all chaos? No, we want our kids to grow up in a secure environment. God wants us to grow up in a secure environment that we feel safe with him, we feel secure with him, that we know his love. And he doesn't want us to live in fear of anything. He wants us to know that we, our lives do mean something. There is clear purpose. There is a direction for our lives. He wants us to know these things. But all of that, all that gets lost if, if we get trapped again in, in, in our fears. And there's lots of stuff that threatens, lots of stuff that scares us. But it's when you come to the realization of His salvation, when you come to the realization of His deliverance, those fears begin to go poof. Poof. When you make the decision to trust Him, really. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. I love this verse. Some of you may want to adopt it as a life verse. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be... What? I will trust and not be afraid. See, that's a decision. It's a decision I'm making based on the truth. I read this, I believe it. You are my salvation, not my 401k, not my boss, not my job. You are my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. I refuse to be anxious about anything. I simply refuse. Why? Because I know he's sovereign. I know he's working his great will out. Isaiah goes on and says, The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my everything, (laughs) my salvation. Wow. Now, the second purpose that he redeems us, the second purpose is that we might live, what kind of lives do you think? Holy and righteous lives. Why holy? God says again and again, You shall be holy because I'm holy. I'm making myself, making you like me. I'm holy. You're going to be holy. One way or another. Holy and righteous lives serving God all of our days. All of our days I get to serve Him. All of our days we get to serve Him. Does God want us holy? Yes. Now holiness has always kind of a Weird effect on people. Holy, all right, be holy. But in the back of people's minds, they say, well, but I want to be happy. Does God want us happy or holy? Well, wait a minute now. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't be so quick to answer. It's a trick question, I'm telling you ahead of time. Does God want us happy or holy? Both. Very good. How many want to be happy? Raise your hand. Everybody ought to raise their hand because they all want to raise. Tim, raise your hand. I know you want to be happy. <laughs> I'm working hard up here, you guys. A little cooperation wouldn't hurt. 
For those of you that want to be happy, what does God say? How does one get happy? Go to Matthew chapter 5. What's in Matthew chapter 5? The Beatitudes. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Oh, but it doesn't say happy, Pastor. It says blessed. Yes, I know. The word means happy. Blessed just sounds more spiritual. That's why they translate it that way. The word literally means happy. It literally means fortunate. It literally means blissful. You're only going to be blissful if you're willing to be poor in spirit. If you're willing to be, to be mournful. If you're willing to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And I want to be happy. Now, the second part of Zechariah's prophecy, we're going to race through this pretty quickly, concerns, first part was concerning the Messiah, second part concerns his son John. Now, remember, John's prophecy about John is contextualized because he's already set the stage for the Messiah. Four things he says about his son John. Number one, John was to be a prophet of the Most High. There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years since Malachi. And now John would be the first prophet in Israel since Malachi. Christ is called the Most High. Christ is called the Most High, which is a title for God. Thus, the deity, the very incarnation of God in Christ, now Zechariah is proclaiming. He's saying the Messiah is God in the flesh. Secondly, John was to prepare the Lord's way. He was to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. Do you and I in any way have a role to prepare people for the coming of the Lord into their life? Yes, absolutely. We get to play a role much like John's. We get to tell people that that God is real. That he, he has a great work. It's a work of redemption for their life. We get to do that. People look at our lives all the time. The question is, how are we living our lives? Are we attractive? Are we a, 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 an, a, a fragrance, an aroma to them? Or are we a stench? Are we people who, when, when they see us coming, they go, oh man, hypocrite, hypocrite. Talk's a good story. I mean, Jesus said this about, about, about God's people. He said, you know, they, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. If we are to be effective in terms of preparing the way for the Lord into people's lives, uh, things that we say, things that we do, how we live, have to speak volumes before our words do. Thirdly, John was to proclaim salvation. He was to proclaim salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Beloved, there can be no salvation without the forgiveness of sins. There can be no salvation without the forgiveness of sins. That implies you have to acknowledge you're a sinner. You have to, you have to confess, I, I, I have sinned. I've broken your law. I'm guilty. 
And it's only through repentance that sinners can find forgiveness. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, he's preached his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people hear it. Luke records it this way. Verse 37, when the people heard this, all that he was saying, they were cut to the heart, they were convicted. And to Peter and the other apostles, they said, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, how can this apply to us? How can we be saved? And then Peter replies, he says, let me give you this three-step formula. Not the 12-step. This is the three-step formula. I'm deliberately saying that. How many know that? I have an agenda, don't I? The three-step formula. Repent and be what? Baptized. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wow. No forgiveness of sins without repentance. None. And John had come to preach that salvation. And fourthly, John was to proclaim, notice this, Christ as the light. The heavenly suns rise. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, Malachi prophesies, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise. Jesus, another term, another description of Jesus, is the Son of Righteousness. The Messiah was being sent through the tender mercy of God to give light to those who sit in darkness, to those in the shadow of death. You and I sat in darkness at one point, didn't we? We didn't even know we were in the dark until someone turned the light on for us. We go, oh! We sat right under the shadow of death, did we not? I mean, you can be healthy, you can be exercise, take your vitamins, eat right, do all the stuff that, that we're supposed to do to take care of these bodies, but these bodies still degenerate, don't they? We have no guarantee, do we, when our ticket is going to be pulled. We have no guarantee. We sit in the shadow of death. People, people just don't realize it. The urgency. The urgency. And he was sent to guide us into the way of peace. Jesus, the light, the light, the light for our path, the lamp for our feet. He's the light. He's the light that dawns in our lives. And so Zechariah prophesies, prophesies about the Messiah and and his purpose and his work. He prophesies about John, his son. And then Luke adds this last statement in verse 80. He describes John's childhood. Notice, all we're told is this. This is all we're told. He grew and became strong in spirit. Not the spirit. He grew and became strong in spirit. What in the world does that mean? How many want their kids to grow and become strong in spirit? 
Yes. What does that mean? What does that look like? Let me, let me offer some thoughts about that real quickly. To become strong in spirit was to be of strong heart. A brave heart. Strong of heart, strong of commitment, strong of will, strong of decision to be decisive, not waffling and afraid and wimpy and not sure. Strong of conscience and conviction. Strong of drive and initiative. He was God's servant, a a man, a young man who was committed to follow, committed to obey, and to serve God. Luke says he lived in the desert, a quiet place, far from the distractions of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. The desert was the perfect place for meditation and thought, for seeking God. You and I retreat to a little desert, don't we? It's called a prayer closet. (laughs) Far away from the distractions to kind of get our bearings and talk to our Heavenly Father so that we can go and be of some use. Luke says he stayed in the desert until God called him to launch his ministry in Israel. You can go to Matthew chapter 3 to read about that. Powerful ministry. What's our point? Our point is, very simply, God, Jesus, our Savior, His call to us in our life to set us free. The point is to, again, appreciate and value and and praise Him and thank Him for all that He does and all that He continues to do and the settled conviction that one day we will see Him. It is good to praise Him. It is good to praise Him. Zechariah praised Him. Shall we? Father, thank You for all that You do, all that You continue to do. Thank You for Your Word, which is true. Thank You, Lord, for Your Spirit. Thank You for turning the light on in our lives and bringing us out from the shadow of death and redeeming us from darkness. Thank You for bringing us into the way of peace peace with you, peace with ourselves, peace with one another. Lord, keep us mindful of your purpose that we would submit to you and to your will. We love you this morning. We pray again, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Turn to your neighbor once again. Pronounce a blessing on your neighbor, please. And then share with with your neighbor one thing. Share with your neighbor one thing that's a takeaway for you from this morning. And then if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing his praise one more time before we dismiss.